Take your Bibles, and I'm in the book of Galatians, in the second chapter, Galatians chapter 2. And as a church, we really believe that the Bible is God's Word. It is inspired. It's breathed out. I think as we look at the landscape of our world, as we think of Israel and the attack that they are under, as we think of our own country, we live in a post-Christian country now, And it feels to me like a lot of that cultural Christianity is eroding and the lines are drawn in the sand. And we might as well as a church just just define who we are, right? We might as well just say, let's get our nose in the Bible and let's really understand these doctrines and let's learn to share these truths with others. And so unapologetically, we take a book like the Galatians and we just go through it verse by verse to equip you to be able to stand on this faith and to be able to share this faith with others. What I'd like to do now is pick up where we left off last week. We'll start in verse 11 of chapter 2 and we'll read to the end and that will be our passage today. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Our Father, as we have read these precious words, we are thankful that you have not left us in this world without hope. As we consider the, the attacks there in Israel today, we pray for you to work mercy on the people that are experiencing loss, maybe even in a hospital right now. We pray for you to, to work good through this, as difficult as and impossible as it seems. And Lord, we also want to pray that you would take these words that have been read and now preached, that you would work good through them too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose the longer that you're in ministry or you are in church, the more unique 
experiences you'll be exposed to. I was reflecting on that this week as I graduated school and and assumed a first ministry in Flint, Michigan. There's been a number of unique experiences. I can think the first wedding that I officiated in that church there in Flint was actually uh, of two people that were African-American. It was our own little hip-hop wedding. And uh, the music was a lot different. The, the way that the, the service itself rolled out was a lot different than what I was used to here in rural Wisconsin, but it was wonderful and it was honoring. I could think of some business meetings where people who professed to be Christ-like were anything but Christ-like in the way that they conducted themselves. I could think of a unique business meeting, rather a unique deacon meeting once that was called together of which I was the basis of that meeting, but I wasn't invited to that meeting. Only to find out a little bit before and and, uh, showed up. And the guys looked at me like, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm the pastor. I'm ex-official. I can be at any of these meetings. But one memory that stands out as unique was actually a funeral that I was attending in Flint. There was a couple that was in our church, the husband and wife. The wife was a Christian, and the the husband was not. But the wife had a sister that was involved in drugs and kind of lived in the inner city and unexpectedly and tragically died. And this woman, the sister, asked us to to go to the funeral. Not only go, but my wife sang, and I was asked to, to read some scriptures and to pray. And as I looked out, I certainly don't know anyone's heart, but there was a lot of rough people in the crowd at that funeral. I suspected some prostitutes, some drug dealers, a lot of others that were known for their crimes. As I, as I finally made my way to the seat, I was on the right side of the center aisle around the third or fourth row sitting beside my wife. Midway through that funeral service, a man that was drunk comes staggering up the middle aisle of that funeral and sat a row or two ahead of us and, and just caused one disturbance after another. I could smell him. He was intoxicated, and I figured if I spent another five or ten minutes behind him, I might be intoxicated because of how he smelt. And every so often, he would let out a a curse word under his breath. And the person who was officiating the service would have to pause and wait for him to kind of get control and then resume the service. And then abruptly, he got up. He yelled a profanity at the casket and walked out the center aisle. On the front row was the family of the deceased, and understandably, they were very upset. Now, I'd mentioned to you the man himself was not a Christian, did not profess to be a Christian, and he acted in that way as he got up and started running down the center aisle to, to get into a fist fight with this drunk. And without thinking at all, I got up, put my left hand on that man, that charging man's chest, and tried to stop him, and he kind of walked me down the center aisle backwards in this funeral service, trying to delay this fight enough for the drunk to get out, or at least if they're going to fight, they're going to fight on the sidewalk, not there in the funeral service. Well, in God's mercy, they never did fight, at least that day. And we came back into the funeral home, and it was absolute pandemonium. And I looked at the person who was leading the funeral service to say, what in the world do you do now? And we finished the service in the next 10 or 15 minutes, but no one was thinking about the funeral service. They were all thinking, 
What in the world just happened? I share that unique experience because we have another unique experience within the pages of Scripture here. In verses 11 through 14, you have the two leaders in the New Testament church that are about ready to enter into a very loud argument. You have Peter, the one leader of the disciples, and he has a ministry to the Jews. And then you have Paul, the one who is writing this book of Galatians, and he has a message that he has been delivering to the Gentiles. And we concluded last week, as we worked through the first half of Galatians chapter 2, that it is the same message. It's the same gospel. In fact, as Paul is laying out the history of his message, we learn in the first half of Galatians 2 that he got this message directly from Jesus. And in verse 6, we learn that as he presented this message to Peter and to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to John, according to verse 6, they added nothing to that message. And then in verse 9, we learned last week as we walked through this, that Peter and James and John had offered the right hand of fellowship to Paul, meaning this message that you have been preaching is the same message that we've been preaching and the same message that Jesus has been preaching. And so through the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2, we see that Peter and Paul are in lockstep as it relates to the gospel and what they believed. But what we will find out today, church family, is it's one thing to believe in the same gospel, but it's another thing to live out that gospel. Everything turns on one word in verse 11, but. (laughs) Up until this point, they have been together on what they believe about the gospel. And then we read, But when Cephas, now that's Peter, just another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now you might see those words, eating with the Gentiles, and say, let's just move on to the next part of this verse. But in the Gospels, we understand this is a very significant thing. Jews did not associate with Gentiles. In fact, if they would rub shoulders with them in the marketplace, well, then they would have to go through some ceremonial cleaning before they could go into the temple. But here we see Peter actually sitting down with non-Jews or Gentiles. As we read through the Old Testament, we knew that there was some Old Testament law of what foods Jews could eat and could not eat. They were to be a separate group of people, so they would not eat pigs, nor would they eat fish or sea creatures that ate from the bottom. But on this particular day, as I'm using my imagination, they're eating lobster and catfish wrapped in bacon. (laughs) And they're all seated down at the table with one another. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And here we see Peter eating with the Gentiles. And what was the change? The change took place in Acts chapter 10, where you remember Peter had this vision. He was not going to be eating this unclean food, but God said to him in that vision in Acts 10 that 
there's no nothing clean. It says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then also Peter came to a realization that one is made right with God through a heart change. Through the gospel. And it will do him no good to abstain from this food or to abstain from interaction with the Gentiles. He says, I can't eat with you and and I can't eat this. And then something happened. You see there in verse 12. For before certain men came from James. James is a pastor there in Jerusalem. That's the half-brother of Jesus. There was a delegation that came from this Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And now they are entering into, can I call it the cafeteria, where there is Peter sitting down, surrounded with these Gentiles. Second half of verse 12 says, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. This is an amazing event that takes place. When Peter sees these Jews in a scene straight out of the junior high cafeteria, he says, I can't be associated with these people. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to sit at their table. What in the world is happening here? He was ashamed to be seated with these Gentiles. I don't know how this lobster got here. I don't know how this catfish got here. I I didn't order this food. And he withdraws from them. And if that's not bad enough, look what happens in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So it wasn't just Peter. But remember, he was a leader. And what Peter did, many people followed. Here's this word, hypocrisy. That means there was a mask that was be put on. He, he said he believed in the gospel, that you are saved by faith alone. But the mask is coming up now that says, no, really, you got to honor and follow this law. And it's a, it's a real tragedy that he is bringing along all these other people in his hypocrisy, even Barnabas. Now, if you know Barnabas in the book of Acts, you know that there are times where people kind of gave up on these Christians. But Barnabas was known to give them a second chance. Even Paul himself was a recipient of his second chance. You remember John Mark? When Paul wanted nothing to do with him, it was Barnabas that went and brought him on a missionary journey. But even Barnabas who seemed to look through a different lens than other Christians, says, you know what, if Peter's doing this, then I'm going to do it as well. Look what it says in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. If you would have paused and said, I wonder how many of you believe that you are saved by faith alone, I believe everyone's hand would have went up. But you see, there was a contradiction from what they said they believed, and in their life. Now, what was it that brought this erratic change in Peter's conduct? 
The answer is found in verse 12. Let me read it to you in its entirety again. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Are you ready for it? Fearing the circumcision party. He feared, I don't think of a physical harm, but he feared what they might think of him. Now here's Peter, the man who at one time walked on water, who made the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who told Jesus in the upper room, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death, the one who cut off the ear of the Roman soldier, the one who preached the famous sermon at Pentecost. And he's also the one who denied Jesus three times. And here we see a leader in the church who has a relapse into fear. Is that possible? Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) When by God's grace you have been going along and it seems like you are growing day after day, you're growing in your faith and in your understanding and you have a relapse? Before we get real judgy here on Peter, let's just realize that this could happen to any one of us. You see, Peter was a big fish in Jerusalem, and he feared losing his reputation and his influence. And despite having a keen understanding of the gospel, despite God giving him a vision in the 10th chapter of Acts, as if to say these Gentiles are in on the gospel just as you Jews, he had a relapse into fear, a fear of what people thought of him. And this created a huge problem. And praise be to God that Paul was unwilling to live with this contradiction between what they believed and how they were behaving. Because if he would have went along with this, we might have said there's only one Savior, but there's two different classes of people. But Paul will have nothing of it. So listen to what it says here in verse 14 again. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all. Now wait a minute. Hey, last week we talked about conflict. And you said, Pastor Chad, that when we are in conflict, you even quoted Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why is Paul confronting him in front of everybody? I think you know the answer to that. Because Peter's sin is in public. And he is swaying all these Christians to a faulty way of living out the gospel. So he must be confronted in public. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 27.5. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Or Proverbs 28.23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. So he rebukes him with these words in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paraphrasing. Peter, you were just eating lobster and catfish. You weren't living like a Jew. Now you want these people in this room 
to live like a Jew when you weren't even living like a Jew? He confronted him. And there's no response given by Peter in this passage. And because there's no response, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I'm going to offer some confidence here, is that Peter had no need to respond because he was confronted with the truth. And my guess is he repented and confessed and said, my brother, you are right. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And what I did was wrong, and I'm hoping that he looked at those Gentile that were still sitting there at the table and said, would you please forgive me for how I have acted? I have said I believe in faith alone, but the way I've been conducting myself here today has not been consistent with that message. So you have this ugly scene. But then what follows from this is some beautiful teaching. So what I would like you to look at is he's going to enter into verses 15 through the end of the chapter where he's going to talk about this this wonderful teaching called justification. And that's really the emphasis of the whole book of Galatians. Warren Wearsby in his book defined justification this way, and I can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to quote. He says, Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believer sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Let me just hit that phrase by phrase. We look here in verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because he by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is an act of God. As we saw there in verse 16, it is not the result of obeying the law. This week I was visiting a man that I fished with for years. While fishing a week or two ago, I found out that he wasn't doing very well and he was in a nursing home. I found that nursing home and decided to visit him. And when a person's at that stage, you, you, you're like, we talked fishing for a little bit. And he said, I said, you know, you're, you know I'm a Christian, right? Is it all right if we just talk about Jesus for a little while? And Sure. And so I asked him, I said, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go for eternity? He said, I, I think I'd go to heaven. And I said, then, if, if you were to stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Do you know how you would answer that? And his entire complexion changes, shoulders sunk, and his head sunk as well. And he's like, man, I... I got no answer for that because I am so unworthy. That's not the typical response I get when I ask that question, why would God let you into heaven? Over 90% of the time, it's by what I have done. But, but God had been working in this man's life and bringing humility to him. The Bible says there in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of God the law. You see, all of us find ourselves, just as my fishing friend was, unworthy. And our only hope is in what Christ 
has done. Look at what it says there in verse 21 of this chapter. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Imagine you were there in your apartment or you were there in your house and, and your neighbor's house was on fire. And you went out in front of their house beside your neighbor and as that house is up in flames and it's sure to be destroyed, you say to your neighbor, you know what I want to do? I want to prove my love to you. I'm going in that house. And you go into that house and you, you are burnt to a crisp and you die. And your neighbor says, I don't know why they did that. But, but reverse that story a little bit and say so you go up beside your neighbor and you know your neighbor has one child into that house. And they are not capable of, of getting that child, but you are. And you say to your neighbor, I want to prove my love to you. And as a result, I am going to go in there and I'm going to save that child. And you go in and you save that child. The child comes running out before you can exit that home. The home collapses on you and you die. Your neighbor says to themselves, you know, they really did love me. They did something that I could not do for myself. Unless you realize that you're a sinner, it makes no sense as to why Jesus died for you. But when you are like my fishing friend and he says, I am unworthy, I am not worthy to go to heaven, then you are ready to hear what Jesus has done for you. You are right. Jesus took upon the punishment that you deserve, that you could be justified, you could be declared righteous, and you could enter into a relationship with him and an eternity in heaven. This is an act of God. It's not only that, according to that definition, but it's one that God declares. To be justified is when God declares that a person is righteous. At one time, a person is condemned, but in a moment, God declares them righteous. A transaction is made, and in an instant, they become righteous and a follower of Christ. To be made right with God is not like climbing a ladder with ten rungs. And if I can get to rung number seven, in all my strength, in all my goodness, then I will be deemed acceptable by God. No, God has come down all the rungs of the ladder to you through Christ so that you could be forgiven. And then it says here, this justification, this forgiveness of sins is for believing sinners. You see what it says there in verse 16. But through faith in Jesus Christ. I got good news for you. This declaring righteous is available to anyone here that identifies themselves as a sinner. Now if you're already good, you don't need this. And there's no one good among us. But to those who will humble themselves and say, I have no chance, I have no hope, this is why Christ has come. And what must you do? You must believe. You see, Jesus stepped into the house of fire to demonstrate his love for you 
because you could not save yourself. Sinners, come to receive this gift of forgiveness. And then secondly and finally as we look at this passage, we are not only saved by faith, we are to live by faith. In verse 20, of all the verses in the book of Galatians, may be the most popular. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As he reflects now on this wonderful gospel message, he says, I've been crucified. What he means by that is at one time I was a person that was on this sinful pursuit. What I was attempting to do was to attain all my sinful and selfish goals and plans and dreams and ambitions. But when I was justified, when I was made righteous, all of those were exchanged for God's plans. I'll let you put in a little secret. A lot of times when I wake up early in the morning on Sunday and I drive into church, it's about a 10, 11 minute drive, I listen to a particular song. It might be dated, but I appreciate the message of it and it's my prayer. It's a casting crowns only Jesus. Let me just read to you these verses. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers. But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all, all that really matters, did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there was only one whose name will last forever? I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I want every second to point to him. Only Jesus. And when you are justified, and when you are declared righteous, as it says here in verse 20, that old self has been crucified with Christ. You're not about making a name for yourself. It's only Jesus. And then that leads me to the second part of verse 20 that I want to hit on. And that is when a person is declared righteous, Christ is in them. Do you see it there? But Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, we are not only saved by faith, we are to live by faith on a moment-to-moment basis. This new life is introduced to us at justification. But we learn faith there, but then we are to practice that faith continually depending on the resources provided through the gospel to live out this gospel life. We're not to live a life of formalism where all we do is we just say, let me go to church, let me go to Sunday school, let me go to small group, let me tithe. All those things are wonderful, but we are to depend on the strength that 
Christ provides through the cross to do that. We're not to be just legalists to say, this is what a Christian does. He, he or she gets up and reads the Bible and he prays and he, and he tithes. All that's wonderful, but we, we don't keep score that way to prove of our righteousness. Our righteousness has been provided for us by Christ. We don't live this mystical lives on a quest for warm feelings, on a continual search for signs. Rather, we depend on what the Word of God says as the Spirit of God reveals this truth to us. The Spirit of God empowers us to live this life. We live a life in faith in Jesus. Not just in Sunday school, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout our week. I just confess to you, on Saturdays is, is a big football day for our family. I, I help in a couple of these teams with coaching, one more than the other. And it's been a hard year in one of these teams. We haven't won a game. And I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. A lot of times on Saturday afternoon, when I'm supposed to be studying and getting ready for the next message, I'm, I'm wounded. I'm like... Man, if I would have just called a different defense on that, that play, man, we'd be celebrating right now rather than mourning right now and, and just kind of replaying some of that game. And I was meditating on Galatians 2.20 in preparation for this week, and I thought, what would that look like to coach, to watch my sons in football and say, I am in Christ? I want to apply, I want to have faith every moment as I watch this game and, and offer input or encouragement in this game. And you know what happened? It was so freeing to say, my identity is not wrapped up in how this game goes today. My identity is in what Christ has done for me. And I'm just going to trust and, and by the grace of God do whatever you want me to do here today. But there's something more important and what's going on in this game. And you know what happened? We lost. (laughs) But it was a good game. Let me just apply this message then. Here's a piercing question. Are you justified? Have, Have you been declared righteous, not by your own doing? What are you today trusting in for your acceptance to God? If the answer to that question is anything but faith alone in Christ, you do not have a biblical response. So I just urge you to say something like this. God, I'm, I am not worthy. I am a sinner. My best attempts might get up to a, a half a rung on a ten-rung ladder. My only hope of being declared righteous is what Jesus has done for me. And I want to receive that gift right now. Would you, would you forgive me of my sins? I want to live for you the rest of my life. The second application I think we see here, and this is for us Highland Crest, it's not enough to hold an accurate view of the gospel. We must apply the gospel. Is it possible for us to have two or three classes of Christians in our church? That's what was taking place, and that's what just infuriated Paul. Like, I'll eat with these people. I'll visit with these people. 
But those people, oh, maybe we might not get up from the table to cause a scene, but if you could search our hearts, that's really how we live. I'm just telling you, as we advance into these days, this little fake veneer of Christianity where it's kind of trendy to be a Christian, those days are over, right? So we're just going to have to just hunker down and understand what the gospel is and declare it. And we're just going to have to be faithful to the God, the people that God provides for us, whether they look like us or not. And you know what? The gospel is for sinners. I don't know when's the last time you've admitted that you're a sinner. <laughs> but that's who's coming our way, and that's the blessing that we have, is to minister to them and that they get to be our friends and we get to learn more about the gospel in their lives. So there's going to be inconvenient people. There already are inconvenient people in our lives, right? And praise the Lord for that because you're inconvenient. I checked with your spouse. You're inconvenient. (laughs) I've seen this stuff before, and it comes up in subtle ways. I was talking about that church in Michigan early on, but I remember a time when we were on a mission trip, my wife and I and our youth leader, and we had a whole bunch of group of of uh, students, uh, the core of our student ministry, as well as some new people. You know, there was one girl that got added at the very end. We never even knew her. But she got added to this, this group. And we went up to the UP. And you know something about this girl? She was the prettiest girl in all the youth group. And you know what happened? The girls in that youth group never accepted her. Here they are preaching a message and receiving this message on on faith alone. But I think out of jealousy or envy, because the boys were drawn to that girl, they said, "Mm -mm, we're not letting her in. We're not going to allow her to have a good trip this week on this mission trip. Can you think about that? Here they are to proclaim this message of the gospel and they're not even living it out themselves. I'm just telling you, this can, this can seep into our church and seep into our lives in very subtle ways. So may the Lord use his word today. May his spirit search our hearts to say where are there contradictions in your life. I imagine almost all, if not everyone in this room, says we're saved by faith alone. But does your life, is it consistent with that message? Shall we pray together? Our Father, what a a treasure has been deposited unto us, this great message. And we are challenged here by another message on justification. It was a message intended and initially heard by Peter, the one who preached this message, and if he needed to hear a message on justification again, so do we. We are thankful for this message, and we are so hard-headed, so often so hard-hearted, and so often so slow to apply. Thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. We want to bring our broken lives, the baggage that we have, how inconvenient we are to people, and how they are inconvenient to us. And we throw ourselves out once again to your your mercy. 
and say, would you forgive us? Would you restore us? Would you help us to, to be the young woman, the young man, the boy, girl, the, the dad, the mom, the husband, the wife that you want us to be? We end there. That we are not saved by our performance, by what Christ has done for us. So we, we return there again and ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for this fountain of grace that you've given to us. And it's in his name and by that event there on the cross and the empty tomb that we pray. Amen. I want you to stand. And there's certainly nothing powerful, special about this altar, but if you would uh, come up and pray and say, God, I want to have a life that is consistent with the gospel that I preach. Or if God has dealt with you about that, man, don't be like Peter that was concerned about the fear of man, what people thought of him. But you'd just say, whatever Lord is, I want to make that right. I don't want to be said about me that my life is not in step with the truth of the gospel as it was about Peter at that moment. You come at this altar and we'll sing this wonderful song.